Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You know, one of the biggest myths surrounding the vegan diet is that vegans don't get enough protein, right? Most common question vegans are asked by meat eaters, where do you get your protein from? And I'll specifically address that question in a minute. But the problem here is meat has really become synonymous with protein. But come on, protein is protein. Protein is made from amino acids. And amino acids are indeed required for making the proteins in our body, right? People build muscle and other necessary body proteins from amino acids, which come from the proteins we eat. But these amino acids are just as readily available in plants as they are in meat. Yes, meat is protein dense, but protein is found in plant-based foods. And there's this belief by some that one could never get too much protein and more protein is better. Well, it's simply not true. Consuming excess amounts of protein can actually be harmful. And many people are unaware of the health risks associated with a high protein diet. So if you're eating animals, it's pretty likely you're getting too much protein. The typical meat-eating North American eats about twice the amount of protein that they need in a single day. And the main problem here with too much protein is your body can't store it. Your body can store fat, your body can store carbohydrates, but you can't store protein. So what happens, it gets metabolized and releases toxic substances. It also causes you to lose calcium, so animal protein creates this acidic condition in your body, which can be a bad thing, but that's a whole other topic. So where do we vegans get our protein? From our plant-based diets. In fact, plants are so rich in protein that they can meet the protein needs of the Earth's largest animals. Elephants, giraffes, hippopotamuses, and cows, they all are vegetarians. They certainly are able to obtain the protein they need by only eating plants. How about us human vegans, specifically? You got your whole grains, certain breads, rice, barley, whole grain pastas, your legumes, right? What's a legume? Anything that grows in a pot, beans, peas, lentils, very protein rich. And this would also include all the soy or tofu products out there. Tofu is also known as bean curd, which comes from soy milk. Green vegetables. Yes, certain veggies are a great source of protein. Broccoli, for example. And then we have our nuts, sprouts, and seeds, again, loaded with healthy protein. And remember, with these foods, you're not only getting your healthy source of protein, you're getting other vital nutrients as well that you will not find in meat. And that's the thing. Meat is protein and fat. That's it. No fiber, no complex carbohydrates for energy, no vitamins to protect your body from illnesses. Meat is protein and fat. And we already said that most North American meat eaters are probably getting too much protein, which is not healthy for you. And the fat in meat is mostly saturated fat. And this fat turns into cholesterol. And we know about what this so-called bad cholesterol can do to us. And by the way, there's no cholesterol in plant-based foods. Now let's talk about fiber for a minute. What is fiber? Fiber is plant roughage. So you're not going to find fiber in meat. It's only in plant foods. It's it's actually the indigestible part of plant foods that pushes through our digestive system, absorbing water along the way and easing bowel movements. And a high fiber diet has many health benefits. Soluble fiber reduces the amount of cholesterol the liver makes and slows the absorption of cholesterol. So overall, soluble fiber lowers our bad cholesterol levels. Legumes, beans, peas, lentils, oats, 
barley, beans, fruits, and vegetables, all high in fiber. There's no fiber in meat. Healthiest diet you can have, high fiber, low fat. That's a plant-based diet. The human body has absolutely no nutritional requirements for animals or their products. Okay, so back to protein. So Lori, you're vegan. You must be protein deficient and weak and frail. And how are you even standing up right now? Plants have protein. I'm telling you, if you're consuming enough calories via a relatively healthy plant-based diet, it's very difficult to not get enough protein in your diet. So let's talk about specific foods. Two tablespoons of peanut butter contain approximately eight grams of protein. I put about that much peanut butter or almond butter on my whole grain bread in the morning. And the whole grain bread I have is about another eight grams of protein. So that's already 15 or 16 grams of protein for breakfast. And didn't even mention my seven grams of protein in my oatmeal, which is loaded with fiber, by the way. And then maybe for lunch, I'll have some lentil soup. Ha! Very high in fiber. And guess what? A single cup of cooked lentil beans is going to offer 18 grams of protein. So my lentil soup and maybe some brown rice for lunch is a pretty proteinaceous, healthy meal, wouldn't you say? Now, if you want to believe the guidelines from the United States Department of Agriculture that the recommended daily allowance of protein for the average American man and woman is 56 grams and 46 grams, respectively. I think I pretty much just met my daily protein needs with my breakfast and lunch alone, don't you? This quantity of protein one needs on a daily basis is almost impossible to avoid when daily caloric needs are being met by eating a relatively healthy plant-based diet. Another myth about the vegan diet, you don't get enough calcium. Many people think if you don't drink the secretions from a cow or products made from cow's milk like cheese, then you must not be meeting your body's calcium needs and you're going to get weak bones and osteoporosis and whatever. So where do I get my calcium? Okay, some of the most calcium-rich foods include nuts, seeds, tofu, beans, grains, leafy green vegetables, actually same kinds of foods I get my protein from. In addition, many vegan alternatives to cow's milk, like soy or almond milk, are fortified with calcium, and it's probably recommended that most women take a calcium supplement anyway. But putting aside the cruelty inherent in the dairy industry and all the evidence out there that shows that milk and dairy products are not only not necessary in your diet, but in fact are harmful to your health, doesn't it seem strange or unnatural if you drink cow's milk or eat dairy products like ice cream, yogurt? yogurt, cheese, that you're consuming something that is intended to be consumed by calves? I mean, the milk a cow produces was intended to feed her offspring, not humans. Yes, I know, ice cream tastes good, but it's a strange concept if you think for a minute about where it came from, isn't it? Health benefits of a vegan diet, a plant-based diet. The most common diseases that are killing Americans today, obesity, heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, are not a natural consequence of aging or secondary to bad genes. It's our diet. 95% of the American diet is processed and refined foods and animal products. This is the best diet to kill us. And this is the typical North American diet. And it's not only killing us, but it's making our kids fatter than ever. And, by the way, Americans are spending more money on health care than any other industrialized country in the world. Yet we're sicker than ever. Heart disease, stroke, cancer, other illnesses are the direct 
result of the toxic Western diet. But here's the good news. It's been shown that many of the illnesses that are caused by consuming animal products are reversible. For example, the narrowing and clogging of your arteries by animal fat and cholesterol can be reversed. They can open up again simply by changing your diet. Doctors tend to overlook the power of nutrition as a means to prevent disease. In fact, I don't remember taking any courses on nutrition when I went to medical school. For me, the decision to become a vegan was easy. When I learned about the horrible cruelty and suffering inflicted upon 10 billion farm animals every year, the tremendous impact on the environment, and the effects on our health, the choice was pretty obvious. You can take control of your health. Make a New Year's resolution. Give up the meat, dairy, and eggs. I'm confident within one to two months, your energy is going to improve. Your digestion will improve. If you have high blood pressure or cholesterol, you're going to see that come down. Your weight's going to fall. Your concentration will improve. You can do this. A plant-based diet is the single most powerful thing you can do to prevent and fight against disease. So it's good for you. And of course, it's good for the animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple steps you can take. Make an announcement in the store or business that the car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Your Animals Today tip of the day is about urine spraying by cats. Spraying is a way for cats to mark their territory. 
Spraying is mainly a trait found in male cats, but females will also mark when they are in heat. Of course, in house cats, it's quite undesirable, but fixing your cat is the best way to correct this problem. Litter box issues are another common cause of unwanted spraying, but if the behavior persists, ask your veterinarian to make sure there are no other medical problems present. And that is your Animals Today tip of the day. back to animals today. A few years ago, our veterinarian advised us to begin giving our dogs preventative heartworm medication. As you know, we live in the Southern California desert, and it was explained to us that whereas in the past, heartworm was not an issue around here, more cases were being seen and the recommendations have been updated. So now every month, the dogs get a little tablet to chew and an expensive little tablet, I must add. And before starting this medicine, we had to get them tested to make sure they did not have an active infection. So what exactly is heartworm and what do you need to know about it to keep your dogs and cats safe? Veterinarian Robert Reed is back with us. Dr. Reed is medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital. Hey, Robert. Hi, Lori. Robert. Nice to hear your voice. Thank you. You too. Robert, what is heartworm? So heartworm, of course, is a worm that um, mainly affects dogs. Um, unlike most of the worms we think of that might affect dogs, this one does not live in the intestine. It lives in the bloodstream. And as they mature in the dog, they settle in the main arteries around the heart, so they cause heart disease. And most dogs that get heartworm disease will die from it. So how can we detect early infection, Robert? It's probably important to to recognize how heartworms are transmitted to dogs and what leads to the infection uh, to understand what we can do to prevent it and how we might manage it. Heartworms, of course, being a bloodborne disease, have to be inoculated by something like, in this case, a mosquito that can carry the parasite from one dog who's infected to a dog who's not infected. And there are only certain types of mosquitoes that can do this because the parasite has to be transformed within the mosquito before it can become infected to another dog. And for this reason, some areas are going to be more problematic for heartworms than others because sometimes the mosquitoes are more prevalent that can carry heartworms. And, of course, those mosquitoes have to have a reservoir of dogs in the area that have heartworms. So you'll definitely see some variation in the frequency of heartworm disease in any given area. So to prevent dogs from developing heartworm disease, we recommend that they be tested to ensure that they don't currently carry the parasite and then go on a monthly tablet as a preventive to keep them from getting disease associated with heartworms. And it's kind of interesting how this works. It's not actually preventing the infestation of worms but rather it's killing any worms that they do pick up. That's why it's only given once a month, so that anything that a dog has picked up in the previous month will still be killed or will be killed by the medication. The heartworm larva that circulates in the bloodstream is vulnerable to the medication for about 30 days. The medication doesn't actually stay in the system for 30 days. It stays there for one day and then it's gone. It just kills anything that a dog has picked up in the last month. Now, can cats get heartworm? 
cats can get heartworm. Yes, they're not the primary carriers, they're not the primary hosts for heartworm, and it's a little harder for them to get it. And it's really unusual for a cat to serve as a reservoir for infection. But cats can get heartworm, and they can suffer heartworm disease. In fact, in some cases, it's actually more severe in cats than it is in dogs. Robert, as I mentioned earlier, our dogs are now taking monthly preventive medicine. Should all dogs and cats be taking this? You know, I think so. It's really, because the heartworm incidence varies by region, it's important to talk to your your local veterinarian to, to know what the actual risk is. I don't think heartworm disease does any harm. And actually, I mean, heartworm prevention does any harm, but it actually, and it actually does protect against some other diseases, but not every area has a high risk for heartworms. And it's also important to keep in mind that risk levels can change over time as, introdu- as mosquitoes are introduced into an area, as the population of infected dogs grows in an area, and sometimes when wildlife like coyotes become infected with uh, heartworm disease, they can serve as reservoirs as well, which can affect the frequency uh, or incidence of heartworm disease in a given area. Why do we have to test the dog before starting heartworm medication? That's a good question. Uh, Usually the main reason we test dogs is to see if they already have been affected by the worm, because once they have it, it's not going to be affected by the medication. In other words, the preventive treatment does not get rid of the worm if it's been there for more than 30 days. So if a dog has heartworms that are in a mature stage, the medication that we use for prevention will not work. The treatment has to be done differently, and it's much more involved than the prevention. If we didn't know that they had heartworms already and we put them on that medication, we might think we were protecting them, when in reality they had a disease that was already developing that we were not addressing. Um, There's also a very slight risk that if a dog has heartworms in its system and you start them on a medication, you might cause some illness in them. But the main reason is to make sure that you don't overlook the fact that they already have heartworms and that you're not addressing it. What was the impact of the Katrina disaster on the prevalence of heartworm disease nationally? It's hard to say for sure, but you'd expect that certain areas that might have been lightly affected by heartworms could have had their incidence increase as a result of dogs from Louisiana or another similarly high area, high incidence area of heartworms were transferred into that area. So if a number of dogs came into an area that had heartworms and no one was used to having heartworms around and weren't using prevention, and a mosquito was present that present that could transmit the heartworms, then that would certainly increase the risk locally for dogs affected by those mosquitoes that had been exposed to the positive dog. So, Laura, you mentioned the effect that uh, the transporting Katrina dogs into an area might have um, on the incidence of heartworm disease, and that's an example of how the the risk of heartworm disease, the level of risk can evolve over time. Uh, For example, again, we have in Southern California recently learned that there are species of mosquito 
that were that are not native to California that have been introduced from other countries and are capable of carrying heartworms. And we have not previously had a large number of mosquitoes that could transmit heartworms to our dogs. Now we have a potential population of mosquitoes that's much larger than it used to be, and our level of risk is expected to increase in the next few years, particularly if pet owners in our area are not becoming more aware of it and are not beginning to use the prevention more readily, more effectively. Do we see heartworm disease in other places around the world, such as areas where there are lots of mosquitoes, and I'm thinking Africa and South America? There are different types of heartworms, but certainly you can see heartworm disease in any area where the parasite exists and a mosquito that's capable of transmitting it is present as well. The heartworm disease that we deal with in the U.S. is fairly specifically for our hemisphere. Veterinarian Robert Reed, thank you so much. You're welcome. We all come together and stand together to serve our veterans. We invest in the latest technology. We take the time to train the next generation of doctors and nurses. We work together to make sure we heal their bodies and their minds. This is our mission. More than 300,000 of us working as one, together with families and loved ones. No matter where they live in this country, we'll be there. We stand strong, united. Stand with us in caring for our veterans. to welcome Bob Ferber back on the show. Bob is former L.A. animal cruelty prosecutor and a good friend of the show. Hey, Bob. Hi, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, and I'm very interested to talk to you about what's happening in Connecticut with the new introduction, and it's happening, animal advocates in the courtroom. So tell us about that. Connecticut just passed a law, the first in the nation, that actually allows now animals, when they are victims of animal abuse and there's a criminal case in court, the allows the animals to actually have an independent advocate that works on their behalf just the same as in courts around the country in domestic violence cases where victims have their own independent advocate. It's an extraordinary sort of, actually it's monumental in the world of animal law. Um, it's it's part of that ongoing process of giving more and more rights and status to animals and recognizing that they're not just property. What sorts of things will the advocates do? I can tell you that a way to understand it is that in domestic violence cases, uh, states around the country have begun to provide uh, advocates, independent advocates that stand exclusively for the rights of the victim. Uh, it, may it may surprise people, but in a courtroom, when a victim is um, is in a courtroom, they don't have anybody standing for themselves. As a prosecutor, when I was in court prosecuting somebody who abused his wife, for example, my loyalty was not to the victim. The victim was actually, by 
ethical and legal standards a witness uh, to, to a crime. Oh. Yes, they were a victim, but they actually had nobody that legally represented them. My loyalty was to do what I thought was justice, and that in, oftentimes involves balancing the rights of a defendant, balancing the rights of the victim, uh, taking into consideration the, the time it takes and the resources to prosecute a case. So it's not at all uncommon in a case of domestic violence for victims to have advocates that come in and ensure that the victim's voice is heard. Uh, in some cases, courtrooms or states have laws that allow a victim to speak at sentencing. But, you know, after the person has been convicted, a victim, we've all seen this on television, victims can come into court and yeah. stand up and say, well, this is how I felt and I want this person, you know, to get the maximum sentence. That's the only part up until recently where, um, no, before victim advocates, that was the only voice that a victim had. And now victims advocates come in, and they even during the process of of the first day in court, they have a voice, and they are entitled through their advocate or, or by themselves with the support of an advocate to speak out in court and say what they believe is the appropriate thing to happen in the case. And so the advocate will actually speak like a lawyer for the victim and say, well, I see the prosecutor is doing this, Your Honor, and the defense is doing this, but the victim believes that this is what should happen. Mm. Well, of course, in animal cases, we've never had anything like that. Animals have been treated like not just victims, they've been treated less than that. They've been treated as just damaged property. Connecticut now is finally taking the first, a, a huge step in recognizing that animals are sentient creatures that, like victims of domestic violence, they feel pain, they uh, they suffer, uh, and they also have independent rights to, you know, they have the right now to speak out. They actually have a human voice that says, no matter what anybody else Things in the courtroom. This is what's best for the victim, dog, cat, horse, sentient creature was a victim of some sort of abuse or neglect. So in a given proceeding, you've got the defendant and you've got the prosecutor. And so now you've got an advocate. Is this all arranged ahead of time? Does the judge invite the advocate? Does the advocate say, I want to participate in this proceeding? And then once it gets going, when do they when do they get involved? In the cases of domestic violence, advocates get involved once the charges are filed. Uh, once the, once court, once um, court starts, uh, so uh, the prosecutor can make an independent decision as to whether or not charges should be filed. But once it's in court. Uh, the, the the victim advocate, if you will, whether it's an animal or a, a woman in the case of domestic violence, can get involved in every stage of the proceeding. And I can tell you that there have been times when, you know, prosecutors don't like advocates because they, you know, in some cases the advocate slows the process. They, they in, in some, some prosecutors take this as 
kind of insulting that it's uh, they look at advocates as well wait a minute i can represent the victim and i can do a good job protecting the victim well the fact is that because of a whole bunch of factors in the way our legal system works even the most well-intentioned prosecutor can't really fully represent a victim the way an independent a lawyer can do uh, that is not attached to the defense and not attached to the prosecution. And I think that there's a, a, a very important thing to point out that's different between animal cases and domestic violence cases. We are, in this society, we are still just at the beginning of recognizing that, the, that violence and neglect against animals it needs to be treated properly. Uh, when I started as a prosecutor, Peter, domestic violence cases were not treated seriously. We would barely get, rarely get a case even into the courtroom. Cops would resolve things on the street. They would warn the husband, oh, be nice, don't do it again. Or they would just be warned by somebody in a prosecutor's office. Uh, and if they did get into court and they were charged with a crime, they would get off with a relatively light punishment because there wasn't a con consciousness 30 years ago that domestic violence needs to be treated seriously. And when they started appointing advocates for victims who sat in the court with the victim of, of domestic violence, and when the, the, the two attorneys, the defense and the prosecution, are negotiating terms or making decisions, and that victim advocate is not just sitting in the courtroom, but speaks out and tells the judge without any restrictions what the victim feels, what the lawyer for the victim feels is the appropriate way to go. That had a huge impact on domestic violence and criminal cases and really raised the priority of it for prosecutors. And so I believe that these advocates in Connecticut that are going to begin to represent animals in animal abuse cases, it's not just that it's, it's not a symbolic gesture. It's really going to put pressure on judges, on prosecutors, that this is really serious and that you can't just slide through and, and you know, and sort of, you know, a lot of people hear the term plea bargaining a case out, and well, plea bargaining isn't necessarily always bad, but, you know, this victim's advocate will be there for the animals saying that, no, this is what needs to happen, that this case needs to be serious, that you you can't do this, you know, resolve it in this way or get off with a light punishment. And it's it's really something that has had a huge impact on the domestic violence cases, and I think it's really going to raise the status of animals in our society, and it's going to give them protection like we've never seen before. Yeah. And I think that animal abusers are going to begin to recognize, hopefully, that this is a matter that's going to be taken extremely seriously and that uh, the court system isn't going to just push it aside as, oh, something that's relatively minor and we'll just get rid of it and move on to the next case. Bob, have you heard about this happening in other states yet? There was some discussion about doing it in California, uh, but as far as I know, they never followed through, and we haven't had any advocates for uh, for animals that are legally have the enti- the status uh, to, or the to be entitled to speak out in court. You know, one thing that we have seen is advocates for child victims, and uh, you know, we've seen one thing uh, uh, several years ago where uh, my dog Cookie has a voice in this. Yes. We've seen it where 
uh, children have uh, an animal that can stand by them in a court and sit by them, and they're not necessarily advocates for the animal, but they're they help uh, for the animal. I'm sorry for the child, but there that's another part of the trend of allowing victims to be comforted, to be to speak out, to have a voice in the court system uh, that allows them to really get heard. And so I see a trend more and more with child victims and animal victims of abuse. So I, I suspect that while this is a fairly new thing right now that we're going to see states around the country, especially more progressive states, taking this seriously and doing this, what we really need in the states where animal abuse is not being treated even close to you know the way it should be, some of the more conservative states in the country, Louisiana, Texas, Florida, uh, are notorious for allowing animal abuse, for ignoring violations of law. Uh, we see in the news horrible situations in states like that where animals are just tortured every single day. And prosecutors aren't even filing charges. Investigators aren't bringing these cases to prosecutors. I think that we're going to see more and more where advocates in the courtroom for some a case that's current will be able to start putting more and more pressure that even at the beginning stages of investigations, cops and, and prosecutors are going to say the system is taking this seriously, that animals have advocates now. This is clear to us that resources need to be put on behalf of animals and that judges are going to we're going to see less and less of judges saying well that's just an animal case well you can't say that when there's another lawyer in a courtroom who says wait a minute your honor i am an attorney and i am for that animal and i'm speaking out right now that you are you just can't push this aside and and give somebody a light punishment because you think it's just an animal case i'm here to say it's not and that's the first time it's ever happened in this country and I think that it's one of the most exciting changes uh, for animals anywhere in the world. Well, it's a fascinating development. Bob Ferber, thank you so much for your insight. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Mike Mendel, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I would wake up with a sore neck, maybe a headache, or feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. When I invented my pillow, I wanted it to where you can move the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep sleep faster and you will stay there longer. It's not about how much time we spend in bed. It's about how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all of my own manufacturing right here in the United States. I have a 10-year warranty. You can wash and dry my pillow, and I give you a 60-day money-back guarantee so you have nothing to lose. And here's my best offer ever. My pillow is now offering 50% off their four-pack special plus free shipping. Go to MyPillow.com or call 800-950-0658. That's 800-950-0658 and use promo code STU. That's 50% off plus free shipping. Don't delay. Order now. Welcome back to the show. The California State Assembly just unanimously passed a bill that would protect good Samaritans from legal consequences when they break into a hot vehicle to help an animal in danger. 
As you may know, I have a fair amount of personal experience in this area, so I'm very pleased when I see this sort of legislation because it really can save lives. I want to welcome California Assemblyman Mark Steinor from Rancho Cucamonga, who, along with Miguel Santiago, introduced this bill. Welcome to the program, Mark. Hi, Dr. Laurie. Thank you so much for having me on today. It's very kind, and thank you for drawing attention to this um, important piece of legislation. Well, thanks for working on such a worthwhile bill. So how did you become aware that there was a problem of pets, mostly dogs, facing danger because of the high temperatures in cars? Well, we we hear in the news, uh, you know, unfortunately, every year of, you know, tragedies with children being left inside of a hot car. And and all of us, we we all weep and and our hearts are broken for for those families because in in so many instances, it's, it's, you know, not intentional. But what we don't have reported as frequently is how many animals are left inside of a hot car. And an animal, unlike a human, has no ability to sweat. They're surrounded with a fur coat, and for a very short period of time of exposure within a hot car, their whole um, organ system can, can basically break down and, you know, collapse. So I saw a piece of legislation that was coming out of Tennessee last year that talked about um, providing the Good Samaritan protections to individuals similar that are currently in law, um, allowing people to rescue children that are um, left inside of a hot car, and applying it towards people that rescue pets. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm a big animal lover. I've grown up with animals. It's something that's very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I think that that's something that we need to be able to enable Californians to be able to have that ability, too. I mean, we, you, as you know, we, we live in a very hot climate. And, you know, outside temperatures can be 80, 90 degrees within five to 10 minutes, 20 minutes, it can range up to 125 to 135 degrees inside of a car. And people that love their pets, they don't always know how how much damage this can really cause them. So this is called the Right to Rescue Act. What are its specific provisions? Well, thank you for asking. So it's, it's called the Right to Rescue. It's Assembly Bill 797. And for an individual to be able to receive the legal immunity, there's there's a series of five steps that they need to follow specifically. One, they have to determine that the car is locked and there's no other reasonable method to remove the animal from the vehicle. You know, you, you got to check. You just can't think, I see an animal there and, you know, I want to I wanna smash a, a window. Two, you have to have a reasonable and good faith belief that the animal is in imminent danger if not immediately removed. Now, that's that's very important. You have to truly believe that. Three, you must call law enforcement prior to entering the vehicle. Four, do not use any more force than is necessary to to enter the vehicle. And then five, if you do decide to enter the vehicle, um, you must remain nearby with the animal in a safe location until law enforcement arrives. You you may not leave the scene. Uh, there's there's some concern that this is you know it really is going to make people vigilantes. They're going to see an animal. They're just going to start breaking in. But but this protections of the Right to Rescue Act will not apply to an individual to good Samaritan protections unless they follow all five of those steps. Mark, I live in the Southern California desert here, and for example, today is 112 degrees outside, and I believe an animal left in a hot car today can't afford to wait for animal control or the law enforcement to come and help me rescue this dog. That's correct. And so your first step would be to check to see if the door is open. I mean, if you see an animal or a child locked inside of a hot car, you're going to first, I mean, just as instinct, look to see if the owner of the car is nearby. 
I mean, that's just the natural thing for us to do. And then, you know, check to see if the, the door is, is available to open. You have a cell phone on you. Call 911. Let them know your situation. Let them know your location. You can see that that animal is in genuine distress. I mean, we can see very quickly whether a dog is in true distress. And certainly if there's a child in there, you would just immediately jump to the last step. But then, you know, enter the vehicle. Do what is necessary to enter the vehicle. And then, as I stated, you know, make sure you secure the animal and you wait in a safe area until law enforcement does show up. One thing I would like all of um, your listeners to remember is it, it, it is a crime. It's already illegal to leave your animal unattended inside a vehicle. It's been that it's been on the books as a crime for the last 10 years. You also stated that the other part of this effort is to spread awareness about the dangers of hawk cars to pets. How would that be done? Well, okay, thank you for that lead-in. You do such a great job. Thank you so much, Dr. Lori. Um, myself and two of my colleagues, Assemblymember Kristen Olson and Assemblymember Ling Ling Chang, we actually um, put our bodies where our mouth was, and we locked ourselves inside of a hot car for 21 minutes, and we filmed it. And if you go to YouTube and you search Hot Car Challenge and my last name, Steinorth, you'll see that come up. And you can see over the time lapse of 21 minutes how, um, how difficult it was on us. Now, of course, we're, we're grown adults and we can open a door and there's water nearby and we know all of that is, is nearby and we can go through this by choice. But as I mentioned before, an animal does not have the ability to sweat. So, you know, that 21-minute cycle where it rose from, you know, an outside temperature of nearly 90 degrees to an inside temperature of 108 degrees inside that car, you know, that, that can leave someone in, in tremendous distress, and certainly it can be dangerous, um, almost deadly for an animal. So I, I would like people to understand that when you go out and you take your animal with you and you think, you know, I'm going to stop at the grocery market, I'm going to go in just real quick for something, that decision, that five or ten minute decision could be a life and death decision for your animal. I would like to just caution on a hot day, you know, to all our fellow animal lovers, you know, leave your pets at home. Leave them to home when they're safe and go out, enjoy the day, do the errands you need to run. But just please, if you have your animals with you, keep them with you. Don't leave them in your car unattended. Very good. Mark, what is the status of the bill right now? Oh, well, it's, it's been very successful. It's passed both houses with unanimous bipartisan support. It's on the governor's desk. Now, the governor, because um, session ended, uh, you know, just August 31st, which was last night for me right now at um, about 2 a.m., so really it's September 1st, he has until September 30th to sign or to veto the bill. So I, I would encourage every single person that, that cares about animals to, you know, make your voices heard to the governor's office in a very polite way, of course, because the governor is, is um, very, you know, caring to animals and he has a great reputation of being an animal lover. But just to make it clear that this is something that we, we do believe is, is a, a, a benefit for, for Californians. And this is, this is legislation that we're not trying to create new criminals. We're not trying to do any of those. We're trying to empower our current citizens with Good Samaritan, both um, you know, legal protection from civil litigation and from criminal leg- litigation if they choose to you know, go ahead and extend themselves to protect the life of an animal. California Assemblyman Mark Steinor, thank you very much for introducing this bill and thanks for coming on the show. 
Oh, my pleasure, and thank you very much for thinking to invite me, Dr. Lori. It's been a pleasure, and you know, I, I really do want to applaud all of your animal advocacy as well. I think that it takes all of us working together to be able to really make um, our planet successful and to really make our state successful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals. 